Welcome to the Military Psychology Podcast from the American Psychological Association's Division 19. My name is Dr. Katie McNamara, and I have the pleasure of guest hosting a number of episodes in our diversity series. We'll be speaking with LGBT service members, researchers, and policymakers to educate military behavioral health providers on the unique considerations involved in caring for this population. As a new guest host, you may be wondering, well, who the heck is she? I'm a PhD level licensed clinical social worker, and I've been a behavioral health provider in the Air Force for nine years. As always, my opinions are mine, all mine, and I don't speak for the Air Force or the Department of Defense. I'm an openly and proudly bisexual woman, and my pronouns are she, her. I wrote my dissertation on the outness of LGBT service members which I will talk to you about for hours and hours if you ever want me to. Now, on to our guest for today's episode. We're honored to be joined by Lieutenant Colonel Bree Fram. Colonel Fram is an active duty astronautical engineer in the U.S. Air Force and currently attending the Naval War College. Soon, she'll be transferring to the Space Force. Lieutenant Colonel Fram has served in a wide variety of Air Force positions, including a Research and Development Command position and in an oversight role for all Air Force security cooperation and assistance activity with Iraq. Colonel Fram is also the president of SPARTA, an organization that advocates and educates about transgender military service. Welcome, ma'am. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Excellent. So orient us to where in the world are you? What's the weather? What was for dinner? <laughs> I had a wonderful barbecue chicken pizza on and on that I made in my tiny little toaster oven because okay. I'm a geo bachelor at the Navy War College in Newport, Rhode Island for about another month when we finally get to graduation. I'm excited yeah. and looking forward to that. Congratulations. So. You are a geo-bachelor. Does that mean geographically separated from your family? Yes, it does. So my family stayed behind in New York for the year because we didn't want to uproot the kids for less than a year, new schools, get my oldest away from her hockey team. And so at the time, it was a wonder, it was the right decision. And then COVID hit right after I signed a lease. And mm-hmm. now it's been an incredibly challenging year to be away from the family with all the the issues that have come with being separated and going to attend a virtual school in residence. Right. Wow, that is bizarre when you put it all together. So you said hockey? Yes, my oldest is a, a hockey player. It's it's a lot of fun. Luckily this year, so many of the games were broadcast because no one was in the arena. So I would, even from here, got to watch her play. And it was it's great to see. Okay. Yes, you are a glass half full kind of person, I can tell. <laughs> I always try and look at the look at the bright side because it's how much fun would it be to go through life looking the other way? True. <laughs> I have to relearn that lesson all the time. <laughs> so ma'am, can you tell us? What is your job in the military day-to-day? Dumb it down for folks who are not astronautical engineers. Well, I'll just give you the thumbnail overview of my career that really for the first 10 years of my career, I worked as an engineer and a program manager on satellite programs or launch vehicles, working through some of the subsystems and how to put all these vehicles together, get them into orbit and deliver amazing capabilities to the warfighter. So that was 
that's the basis of what an engineer does in general is, Hmm. you know, come up with solutions to make sure we're delivering capabilities. But since then, I've done any number of jobs working in D.C. I did four different jobs in four years. I had the honor of being a legislative fellow, got to spend a year on Capitol Hill, understanding how the congressional process works. That was amazing and eye-opening. Did strategic planning for the Air Force. You mentioned I got to work at Air Force International Affairs and go visit the same base in Iraq where I deployed in 2004 and go see it in 2018 as an Iraqi-run base where they're flying F-16s. And what a difference to see that. Um, And that was all prior to taking command and working on developing counter UAS systems and offensive cyber capabilities. So all sorts of different things, but I'm so excited after this to go back to go back to the Pentagon, which is kind of a weird thing for some people to say, uh, <laughs> but to do integration of different programs for the Space Force and, you know, help set a culture in a new service. So again, what an opportunity to be there from near the beginning and do some amazing things with our international and inter- interagency partners. Wow. My eyes are very wide. I have goosebumps. What a career. I truly can't imagine how many times you've had to start over. New job, new job, new job, new <laughs> command. You know, the, the worst part about a new job every year, particularly in the Pentagon where everything's on an annual cycle, is that you get the opportunity to screw something up and then mm-hmm. you never get the chance to fix it because you've mm-hmm. moved on to something new. So I learned a lot of lessons and mm-hmm. then never got to apply them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those jobs where you actually can stay for two years, what a fantastic thing. Uh, where oh, you can fix some of your mistakes can... from, the, from the first year. Yes. All right. Well, we are so lucky to have you. The Air Force is lucky to have you. And in addition to this career that you've mentioned, I've also seen you basically have a sec, a part-time job, this unpaid part-time job as an advocate for transgender service. And I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about that. What got you interested in this population? Well, what got me interested in the population is that I'm part of it. So being a a transgender service member was a huge part of of who I was and the connection to other people that have similar experiences is so valuable, particularly as you're, you're new to a community, as you're new to coming out and those experiences that are so challenging for so many of us to have others that have gone through the same thing is heartwarming and is so hope inducing almost Hmm. that like, Hey, other people have gone through this before they're doing amazing things. And that was something I really wanted to be a part of. And so when I was introduced through a a third party to Sparta back in 2014, I jumped on the opportunity, even though I was still at the time figuring out my gender identity and where Hmm. I was on my journey. Hmm. And over the years, it just became a bigger and bigger part of not only who I was as I explored my own identity, but as a chance for me as a senior officer to give back and to make it easier for those that would follow me. And because of the unique experiences I've had in my career, understanding how to be an advocate, how to work with Congress, Mm -hmm. how to do some of these things that some more junior folks may not have had the opportunity to be exposed to, Mm -hmm. I almost looked at it 
as duty, because if not me, then who? Mm-hmm. Um, if I can make it better for others, I've got to jump on that grenade. But it's so rewarding to see other people blossom and to be their true selves. Mm-hmm. So you have found yourself to be uniquely situated to fill this role because you're a senior officer. You've been around the block. You've worked in and around Congress, not as a congressperson, but in the general vicinity. And you were there when Sparta was first becoming an entity. Yeah, I was there about a year, year and a half after the founding of the organization. So at the time, there may have been about 150 members when I joined because this was pre anything coming out about trans service uh, Mm -hmm. becoming a reality in the military. At the time, if people were found out, they were thrown out of the military. Mm -hmm. So Sparta was a very secretive word of mouth type organization where if you didn't know someone who knew someone, you weren't getting in and getting connected because we had to be very careful about the identities of our members. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the folks that were there before me took some incredible risks to do some amazing things to pave the way for open service. Mm -hmm. Yes, we have to pay homage to the risk that our predecessors took for years and years, not only advocating for eventual open transgender service, but also caring for folks who are being harmed in their units because of their gender presentation. We know from the research that about 13,000 service members are transgender. It's likely more. And we saw over the past few years this really nonlinear progression of trans service. First, it's not allowed, then it's allowed, then there's a tweet, and it's not allowed. And it's, it was just very confusing, hard to keep track of, well, what's allowed now? Can I get the new, you know, back with the ABUs when it buttoned one way for male, buttoned another way for female? Can I use the other one? Yeah. So you need, so all this to say, you needed a network to be able to keep up to date on how authentic you could be at work. Absolutely. The network is critical for providing peer support for people on those, those little things like how do I wear the uniform to what is the regulation today? The analogy of a roller coaster ride is so mm-hmm. perfect to describe trans service over the past six years of unimaginable highs and heartbreaking lows Mm -hmm. where people are wondering, am I going to have a job tomorrow? Is this thing that I've fought for and I've been a part of and this career and this life that I've built, is it disappearing uh, Mm -hmm. through no action of my own, uh, Mm -hmm. simply through a tweet? Uh, Mm -hmm. And so the emotionality of the journey we've been on has been immense. So having that network to lean into when you need to can be incredibly important just mm-hmm. to share that message of hope of that we're going to get through this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I'm wondering if you can tell our listeners how the military is doing right by transgender service members now. So with the new policies that are coming in place right now, I think we're taking some big steps forward. Though these policies did come into place quickly, they had to build on the work that was done in 2016 under the Obama administration. Now, still, they had basically a four-year period where there was no progress on making these policies better. Mm -hmm. And like any new military policy, 
there's always going to be room for improvement. Amen. Uh, and they will go into annual or, or several year review cycles where we can learn from the experiences that service members are having and make sure that we're improving those policies over time. But I think we're off to a really good start and we're making some improvements already at both the DOD and the service levels and more to come. So we're really excited about the opportunities this is bringing. Mm -hmm. And many of our listeners are military psychologists or social workers or nurse practitioners or medical providers. And they want to know, how do I ensure that I am part of the solution? What can I do day to day with the patients that I see to ensure that I am an affirming competent provider for transgender service members? Yeah, the the biggest thing I would offer is don't think of yourself as a gatekeeper because that's the view that a lot of trans people have of the medical and the mental health community, that they are almost going to you and they are going to be judged for who they are and they have to get past you in order to be their best and most authentic self. And that's scary for a lot of people to have to pass the test. And for me, I fought ever getting a gender dysphoria diagnosis because of some of the criteria that Mm -hmm. go along with that. That not only do you have to meet these criteria of you see yourself as the opposite sex, but there's this label of clinically significant distress Mm -hmm. that's part of the diagnosis, which is required for treatment. And I never wanted that label. I felt I was functioning incredibly well. I was doing amazing things. But what does it mean for someone to tell me I have clinically significant distress? Mm-hmm. Uh, at, to me, that's the impression that I'm broken in mm-hmm. one way or another. So if you can be their advocate and not their gatekeeper, that's mm-hmm. a really valuable thing. Don't ask the person to prove how trans they are mm-hmm. if they come to you and say, I'm trans, this is who I am. It's not a test. It's not something that needs to be challenged unless the patient themselves is expressing doubt or wants to explore that. To question if they're trans or not can be really painful for a trans person. Hmm. Talk about causing clinically significant distress, (laughs) making somebody prove that they are who they say that they are. Absolutely. Yes. I'm also remembering that I have certainly come across providers and not to wag the finger, maybe I'm also in that community of folks who just want to really have the patient to prove, well, this is the exact time in my life when I quote knew I was three years old and XYZ happened because maybe you want the patient's story to sound like a movie or a TV show that you saw once about a transgender person. And it's important for us as providers to realize that Yes, transgender folks fit into a community, but that doesn't mean that every single trans person's story is the same. And we can allow ourselves to be surprised and curious if a patient's story is different than what we expect it to be. Absolutely. Every journey is unique. And some people are going to know they're trans before they can even speak. For some people, it's a year's multiple year journey of 
discovery on their own of understanding themselves or even overcoming internalized transphobia that they've absorbed from the world around them and be willing to admit it to themselves. So you can have a three-year-old who will tell you immediately that they are not the gender that's on their birth certificate. Mm -hmm. But in others, it might be someone who's 70 and it can be somewhere in between that or on the other ends of that. So treat the journeys as unique and don't try and stovepipe it into this is what a trans journey looks like or has to look like. Mm -hmm. And you you mentioned an interesting term, transphobia might be a new term for some of our listeners. So similar to homophobia or biphobia, society's messaging that a sexual or gender minority expression is unhealthy or abnormal as many folks have been taught throughout their lives in their community, maybe in their religion, maybe even in their families of origin that can get under your skin, so to speak, where you start to realize, am I abnormal? Am I unhealthy? And we as providers can work to help our patients unlearn that incorrect messaging. Yeah. And so much of that messaging comes from the media historically, from our families, from our our religious groups, from any of that where a person can absorb all that negative stereotyping of trans people and say, this can't be me. I'm going to fight this. This isn't who I am. It's why if we look at historical rates of military service, trans people, according to VA data, have served at over twice the rate of their cisgender counterparts. And so much of that was that flight into masculinity. Like, I'm going to get away from being trans by joining the military. No, that doesn't necessarily work. You may just delay when you come out, but you can't get away from it forever. And if I could recommend one documentary, I'd say watch Disclosure on Netflix about the media portrayals of trans people historically. And you can see how so many people, if this is what they've seen Mm -hmm. of what a trans person is, and they might say, whoa, that's not me, so I must not be trans. And again, it's treating everyone as a unique individual. And if that's something they need to do to explore how they might have internalized some things that cause them shame over who they are. Mm-hmm. I'm hearing you say that providers can take a first step at thinking critically about their own beliefs and maybe any transphobia that they might have, you know, no shade on them or us, but it is perhaps just the water in which we swim and it'll take some humility to critique any transphobia that has seeded inside of ourselves. Yeah. If trans people themselves can internalize and take in some of this societal fear of trans people, it can certainly affect anyone. And I think we all need to be aware of our own biases. No one is is free from them. But if we can recognize that they may exist and try and educate ourselves, we all come out better for it. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned a a unique journey that every transgender individual will have in terms of learning about their own gender expression. I'm wondering if you can tell us about yours. Sure. I'll try and give the, here's 40 years of Brie in just a minute or two. (laughs) Uh, But I knew something was different about me from an early age, but I wasn't one of those who at three or four or even 10 or 20 could put my finger 
on what it was. But when I was three and four, I was Wonder Woman along with my sister for Halloween. Uh, mm-hmm. So something was different about me. And by the time I got into, you know, around nine, 10 years old, I was getting into my mom's things all the time. I didn't know what that meant, but I got caught by my parents once and they sent me to a psychologist at the time. And after one session, I was returned to my parents and the psychologist said, ah, he's normal enough. And from there, everything was basically forgotten about. And if I do write an autobiography someday, I do have to go with normal enough as a title. I think it's perfect. I love it. But beyond that, that me getting into my mom's things was certainly still a part of my life. And, you know, at that point, I'm I'm into my teenage years and puberty's hit. And so I start thinking, well, is this just sexual? And that sticks around for a long time. You know, maybe this is just a fetish. Maybe this is something else. I wasn't thinking of it as identity, but it wasn't going away. And I knew that. Mm -hmm. So even in college, when I met my now wife, three weeks after we started dating and I knew we had something going, that something special was was coming, I had to tell her. Because even though I was just sharing my confusion to a certain extent, she needed to be there and it was something that wasn't going away. And if she didn't know and I were to tell her later in the relationship, even at that point, I understood how devastating and how challenging that might be. Mm-hmm. So I knew enough to tell something, but I only knew enough to share a little bit of my confusion and the fact that I like to wear women's clothes. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until I was coming up on my 30th birthday that it started to be something more like identity with me, mm-hmm. that I started to realize that this could be who I am. For my 30th birthday, I was TDY and I was in the San Francisco area and I took myself as a treat to a, a makeover service and kind of saw for that first time, oh, wow, this is what I could look like. This could be real. Mm. And over the next couple of years, I started to come out slowly and engage with some friends, leave the house for the first time. And I remember that incredibly nerve wracking experience of mm driving to a gas station far away and going to the furthest away pump and filling up my car and then getting back in the car and driving back to my hotel and mm. heart pumping through that that very first exposure to the world mm. not presenting as a guy such um, ambivalence i'm hearing on the one hand you know that this feels right on the other hand you are concerned about how you might be viewed by others. Am I getting that right? Yeah, there's both the, how am I viewed by others? There's the, the slightly more vain, but the, how do I look? And, but that's all for a lot of trans people. Passing is a big deal to be recognized as the gender you are Mm -hmm. rather than misgendered, which is, can be a very painful thing Mm -hmm. for a lot of people. But at that point too, I also had the issue of if word of this, if a picture of this got to the wrong people, I could lose my career for Mm -hmm. a reason that had nothing to do with my ability to serve. So there were fears about what do other people think? What does my family think? What will friends say? How will my relationships change? But also, oh my God, if the military finds out, what then? Mm -hmm. Um, So there was a lot of that internalized fear Mm -hmm. uh, at the time constantly having to forecast 
what happens if this does not go well? If the wrong people find out, if people don't metabolize this the way that I hope that they do, it's like you have to be constantly weighing the pros and the cons. Yeah, you develop almost a hypervigilance, hmm. which, which is good and bad. It can be challenging and there's a lot of energy that has to go into maintaining that hypervigilance, hmm. but it can also turn it on its head and as a leader or as someone in an organization where you have to notice certain things and take them into account, it's an incredible skill to be able to read people and to understand what's going on. And it allows you to be a better communicator. So all of these negative experiences that people may have or challenging experiences, you can also flip them and look at them as developmental experiences. Mm -hmm. Yes. And in our field, there's this concept of post-traumatic growth in that if you have, you know, a collection of protective factors, adverse experiences can be molded in a way in which we are better than we started, which isn't just glass half full kind of Pollyanna positive, you know, delusional thinking. It really is the case. And I think that you are speaking to that. You've noticed that the challenges you've been through have made you better leader. I'm wondering if you can tell us more about, this is reminding me of one of the projects you're working on right now, superpowers that minoritized individuals might have. Can you tell us about that project? Yeah. So I'm writing a book along with a professor, Dr. Liz Cavallaro here at the Naval War College on some of the unique skills that LGBTQ people build through some of these challenging experiences, such as coming out, transition, or even the stigma that, that they face. And it's not that the skills themselves are something no one else has, but the way they're built might be different. And their prevalence within that community might be much higher than it is mm -hmm. in other communities. In addition to that, you know, ability to communicate that some of these things can give you. One of the biggest ones, I think, for trans people is perspective taking. And that ability to have potentially seen the world through two very different sets of eyes. Mm -hmm. And an example mm -hmm. I use is when I used to attend meetings, particularly in, in the Pentagon, I would walk in, I would sit down, I'd be a part of the meeting, and I would think very little about the room around me and the composition of the people in the room. But when you walk in as a female, and you notice that everyone there is an old white man, that's a very different dynamic. Mm -hmm. And that ability to, oh, are other people doing this? Are other people walking in and counting the room to who might be my ally in this? Can I speak up? What is the dynamic at play here? And as I said, that's just one example of a very different look at the same situation mm -hmm. uh, and that ability to hold multiple perspectives gets you thinking about what are other people thinking? What is their background or their unique experiences lead them to think about this? And what can I do to draw that out and bring that into the solution? Or even if it's in a military setting and I'm thinking about what is my adversary doing? Mm -hmm. What unique things are they bringing to the way we're understanding this conflict. Mm -hmm. So I think perspective taking is a huge aspect that comes out of this. Mm -hmm. And 
The other we can go into at length certainly is, is empathy. The ability with that perspective taking to understand and to be willing to give someone the benefit of the doubt mm-hmm. in some cases that, you know, you might not be coming at this from the hostile position that I think you are. Maybe there's something in your background, in your beliefs, in your experiences that leads you to take a different tack on this. And I, I want to listen. I want to understand. And maybe you're going through something traumatic or difficult. How can I help? Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a lot of skills that you can build through these experiences. Mm-hmm. And I also want to mention that we don't need to expect LGBTQ people to be superheroes like the way you are describing all the time. I would hate for folks to feel like I have been through these challenges. I've been discriminated against and I, by golly, will turn these into strengths. Some days you're just surviving and that's okay. Yeah. Some days your emotional meter is just running dry and the concept of minority stress is very real. And whether that leads to burnout or people withdrawing from the world, that can certainly happen. So it's not a guarantee that you have to be a superhero at all times after these experiences. It's okay to need some time to take care of yourself or to realize, hey, this just isn't for me. So there's a lot that can come out of it. And again, so we have that good and the bad. You can develop these superpowers or you can burn out and be like, I'm done. So definitely something where your field can help. If someone's experiencing the negative side of it, how do we get past that? How do we turn it around? How do we look at, well, here are all the other amazing things you're building because of these experiences. And how can you use those to your advantage, even through the hardship? And how can you know, not to make you responsible for a whole cultural change. (laughs) So feel free to pass on this one. But how can behavioral health providers or maybe even military medical providers in general communicate an affirming transgender stance to new patients? One of the best things you can probably do is just be there for the person. Avoid the gatekeeping that we talked about Educate yourself if you aren't already, but even better ahead of time about LGBTQ issues because so many trans people have to be their own best advocate when it comes to educating medical providers, mental health providers, or their commanders and supervisors. And that's hard. That's a big lift and a heavy investment for the person to not only be the patient, be the one asking for something, and to then educate on top of that. So please don't ask the person to educate you on that unless they're coming forward with that on their own. Mm -hmm. Um, So don't make them be the educator. Mm -hmm. The other thing I would add, and I would say this to a commander as well, is if a trans individual comes to you or they're, they're coming out, they want help, This is an opportunity. It's not just an opportunity to help them be okay. This is an opportunity to help that person reach their full potential. So to a commander, I would say, treat it as though this were a troop coming to you with an educational opportunity 
you'd be all for it. You'd be like, yes, let's let's get you that new skill set. Let's get you that that degree, whatever it is, because you're on the back end going to be a more valuable member of the military. It is the same for someone treating a trans person. You are going to be a better and more valuable member of the military, and you're going to be a better and more valuable you to yourself and your family. So what an opportunity to be able to help someone along that journey. Mm -hmm. Yes, a profound responsibility and opportunity. And I know for me as a provider, I've played with different ways to communicate to patients that I'm LGBT affirming, especially because I know that in the military community, we have been mandated to not be LGBT affirming for the majority of our existence up until quite recently. Don't Ask, Don't Tell was only repealed 10 years ago and the trans ban, you know, on again, off again, on again, off again. It's only been repealed this year, like, you know, a couple months by the time this airs. So I have played with ways to be extremely overt about (laughs) my openness. And by no means does that mean that I'm the expert but I do want to decrease the barriers to disclosure of one's queer identity to me as the provider. Just take that off the plate. That might not even be what they're coming to talk to me about. So I've decided to put a pride flag sticker on my hospital badge. It's really, really small. It's just like a centimeter high and like 75 percent of an inch or three three quarters of an inch wide. It's very small, but it's very visible because it's a rainbow. And I've seen so many patients like double take it. Like they look down and then they look down again and then they look straight at me. And I know that it's registering to the right people. And so frequently, somebody who does identify with the community, with the LGBT community, they're presenting problem has nothing to do with minority stress at all. It's, you know, workplace stress. It's, you know, a challenging spouse. It's parenting. It's insomnia. It's just kind of irrelevant to them presenting for care. And I think that that's important too, as providers, we don't need to make something a problem if it's not a problem in our patients' lives. Oh, that is so important. In addition to trans people having to be educators in so many situations, we have something we call trans broken arm syndrome, where it it almost seems like you go to the doctor and say, doctor, my, my arm is broken. And the response is, but what about your trans? I'm like, no, doctor, my arm is broken. Please, you know, set the bone and give me a cast. Well, let's talk about your transness first. No, but that happens way too frequently. So what you're advocating is perfect. Don't assume it's trans related first. It's other things. That person just happens to be trans. And if you can give that welcoming vibe whether that's through a sticker, that's a a poster or something else expressing that, putting your pronouns on your email or on a badge like that is another great way to show you're LGBTQ friendly. Tell us why for cisgender folks, cis-c-i-s gender, um, folks who identify with the gender they were assigned at birth, why is it important for cisgender folks to put their pronouns in their signature block, for example? I think it simply shows an awareness of gender identity as a thing and a realization Mm -hmm. that what someone's gender identity is 
might not match a name. It might not match a look. It might not match some other perception of the person. And it's a sign that you will accept other people as they are and as what they tell you they Mm -hmm. are, not what you may perceive them as. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it costs little, I would say. I mean, there's always the concern that you will anger or frustrate a non transgender affirming person. And I think we as professionals have to ask ourselves, are we willing to take on that risk? What does our professional board say? You know, what does the APA say? What does the National Society for Social Work say? And National Association for Social Work, I think it is. I should know I'm a member. And they all at this point are LGBT affirming. And the military also is affirming. So we are covered in that way. And it's just about taking the leap and being overtly affirming. I also wanted to ask you, if we were to project into the future, let's say right now a baby's being born who is trans. One day they will identify with a gender that they are not assigned at birth in the next week. And they decide to join the military. How do you hope their military experience is different than that experienced by trans folks now? My hope is that they simply wouldn't have a worry or a concern about being trans in the military. That, again, it wouldn't be something that comes to mind first. They're just any other soldier, sailor, airman, marine, guardian, coast guardsman, which is a huge mouthful (laughs) now, just like anyone else. And they've joined for the plethora of reasons that everyone else joins for. It's just that they happen to be trans, which has nothing to do with their ability to serve or even should be a consideration Mm -hmm. relating to their service. Mm -hmm. So you are really an advocate for someone's gender identity being deprioritized, almost like eye color or, I don't know, ear shape. (laughs) Where it doesn't matter, it shouldn't matter. Hmm. When it comes to the pieces of of an identity and a background, though, that, that do matter, then it should be recognized and celebrated along with the whole diversity of, of humanity. Mm-hmm. And one of the other things I noticed and I, I took on as I, as I went through my transition was there used to be this concept where people would say, you know, all I see is blue for an Air Force person. Mm-hmm. I don't see, but that's like saying, I don't see you. And in mm-hmm. some situations that can be erasing and that can be harmful because we need to understand where a person's identity is relevant to the situation, where it gives them a unique perspective, or where they may be experiencing something harmful based on that piece of their their identity that you would completely overlook if all you saw was the color of the uniform they're wearing. Mm -hmm. So what you said is reminding me of the conversation on race and racism, the idea of being colorblind. Oh, I don't see color. You're all blue to me or you're everyone's just a human. While the sentiment is maybe nice, what it actually communicates is that you will not see racism because if you can't see color, then you're not going to recognize racism when it's happening. So the idea is, please do see my unique traits and how it's uniquely affecting my life. And believe me when I tell you that it is. 
Couldn't agree more that it's critical to recognize identity when it's relevant to the situation. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I want to know if you wouldn't mind sharing with us a little bit more of the concept of passing. You mentioned it in passing and tell us more about what that means. That really means, you know, walking through the world and having people have a perception of you that matches your gender identity. And it can be a stressful event, Uh, you know, just for that trans person leaving their house the first time for a a person, you know, wearing a dress that first time and going out into the world and getting called sir. How painful would that be? Is that? And I've certainly experienced that even today, be it intentional or unintentional, it's ow, that my projection of identity doesn't match how the world sees me. Uh, So it can certainly be a stressful thing. And in some cases, you know, people just have to soldier on through that. But in the military, it's important when a trans person comes out and they've identified their pronouns, that intentional misgendering, that's damaging. That's damaging to the person and that's damaging to unit cohesion and good order and discipline. And that's something that is protected under our equal opportunity policies. Mm -hmm. So we have to be very cautious of that and basically tell people that's not okay. I always assume if, if I get misgendered that the first time it's done out of ignorance. If I correct someone, And then it's done again. Sometimes, sure, it's forgetful. Someone's known you forever and and they make a mistake. Got it. But you can start to tell really quickly when it's being done deliberately or antagonistically. And that's a big problem that a lot of trans people worry about. Yikes. My mind is reeling to understand why somebody would do that, intentionally misgender someone. I guess it's just, gosh, yeah, I can't understand why. It happens far too frequently, and that's probably one of the biggest complaints I hear from people, especially folks that have have just come out, that have just started presenting as their authentic self. That's a a huge obstacle for people to overcome. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Or using a dead name or the old name, just being careless or thoughtless about the individual's expressed pronoun or name. Right. And thank you for explaining this. I know on the one hand, we say like, please don't make minoritized people do the emotional labor of educating the rest of us who are, you know, in positions of privilege and power. And yet here we are. And so I thank you so much for taking on this additional emotional labor that you're doing for the benefit of people to come. It's my pleasure to do so. Again, it To me, it's both an opportunity that I embrace and a pseudo obligation, because if I can make it better for others, wow, talk about, you know, fulfilling what we expect our officers to do, to make it better for others and to leave the organization a better place than you found it. Mm -hmm. Yes. And your four-year-old self who dressed as Wonder Woman clearly was on to something, clearly knew exactly who you would be. So I want to make sure I leave space for you to plug any projects that you have coming up that you think our listeners would benefit from. 
Yeah, thank you for that. We already talked about the book I'm working on now that'll probably be out sometime in late 2022 if we stay on track. But more importantly, and a great resource for some of your folks out there coming out later this year is my first book, which is titled With Honor and Integrity, Transgender Military Personnel in Their Own Words. Uh, It's out from NYU Press. You can find it on Amazon or other booksellers for pre-order. And that has over 20 stories of transgender individuals, some dating from the Vietnam era and forward, but mostly from people that are serving today about what their experiences have been like in the military. It also has a little bit of the history and the science behind it. You know, what was the fight for open service like? Uh, So great opportunity to educate and, and learn about some amazing stories from trans people due out in November this year. Great. I can't wait to read that. And I'm already thinking about how after I read it, I'll put it on my bookshelf at work as another way to communicate (laughs) that I am affirming. So just always thinking of ways to communicate that to our folks because you've been, you know, maligned for quite some time and deserve better. So Colonel Fram, with that, I want to say thank you so much for your time. And I hope you're able to emotionally recharge. Thank you. I appreciate it. I'm looking forward to reconnecting with my family and moving on to some new opportunities. But thanks for having me tonight. Thank you.